0: This program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more.
1: Chef Story. Um, this is Dorothy can Hamilton, and today I'm sitting not in Roberta's <laughs> in Williamsburg, but actually looking at the Golden Gate Bridge at the Presidio in San Francisco with one of my favorite chefs in the world, Tracy Desjardins, um, who is, who's just added yet another restaurant to her constellation, the commissary here at the Presidio. Um, for those of you who might not know Tracy as well as I do, let me give you a little bit of her background. Um, she really hit the American scene when in 1995 she was the rising star chef at James Beard and best new chef. Um, she In 2007 she got the uh, James Beard Foundation best chef of the Pacific region. Her restaurants have been called the best new restaurant by Esquire. Um, in 7x7 uh, San Francisco's most fascinating people in 2014 she was a finalist on Top Chef Masters, and this I love, I love. She beat Mario Batali on Iron Chef. She is one of the most um, dynamic, important uh, chefs we have in the United States today, and so I'm really, really privileged and honored and happy that you're with us today. Welcome, Tracy.
0: Thanks, Dorothy. Great to be see you. Great to be talking to you this morning.
1: Okay, so for all our friends out there, I'm going to um, uh, talk to you first about uh, your upbringing and. I think a lot of people know you have a Mexican uh, heritage background because of the food that you do. But in my research, I see you're also French Acadian. Yes. Well, so so tell us where you grew up, how you grew up, where what what how are all those influences, and how you got to be Tracy Desjardins.
0: Okay. <laughs> I'll do my best. Um, I, w- I grew up in a small town. The name of the town is Firebaugh, and if you uh, if you went through there, you would sort of look at it and say, you know, how did you become who you are? today and I, I guess that's my story um, uh, my my grandparents were born in Mexico um, and uh, immigrated here um, my grandfather when he was about 20 and my, my grandmother when she was quite young about five and um, so I grew up in in a town that was very influenced by you know Mexicans and that population of people a lot of farm workers and then a small population of, of you know farmers and, and farm owners and um, and that was sort of my dad's side of, of things, and he, um, his his father was born in Louisiana, Ooh. so he was yeah he was Cajun, Cajun. he was a Cajun, oh. and uh, his mother was Norwegian um, and Swedish and grew up in the Pacific Northwest, so she was like this amazing baker, and my grandfather my paternal grandfather was this he'd grown, grown up on the bayous. And so his passion was all about seafood. He, he literally used to drive from the valley over to the coast in Santa Cruz and fill his car full of fresh seafood and drive back to the valley. And at that point in time, I mean, it took, you know, probably, you know, 10 hours round trip. Um, you know, because the cars weren't very fast and, and so on and so forth. But he was so uh, into food that that was just, you know, what he wanted to do and what he was about. So I grew up with food all around me. Um, my, all my grandparents cooked, and everybody in my family cooked, and food was central to what we did. And my, my dad is a farmer, um, so I grew Still, up. Still? Um, he retired about five years ago. Um, but
1: all your life?
0: All of my life. He so you was, grew
1: up on a farm.
0: I, I in a small town, but you know, spent a lot of time out on the farm, um, and it was more agribusiness. It wasn't a cute little, you know, fabulous organic farm. Um, <laughs> I wish I could say it was. Um, you know, if we mentioned organics at the kitchen table, it was usually a, a big, you know, fight. Um, <laughs> so you know, he's he's kind of come full circle and um, learned the value of it. But uh, yeah, I grew up in you know a small town that was kind of about agribusiness. Um, he farmed cotton, sugar beets, and rice. Um, so he was a, a rice farmer. So I uh, I grew up eating rice every meal. It was uh, California short grain Japanese rice. Um, and uh, that was, you know, my life. Um,
1: so when you were in the fifth grade, mm-hmm. what did you want to be?
0: So up until the time I was uh, 16, um, and from the time I was about five, I wanted to be a veterinarian. Um, I was really into animals. I... Um, was passionate about horses and always had, you know, a million cats and dogs and was always rescuing animals that I found, you know, who were abandoned. And it was my passion as a kid was always that. And I really, that was, that was my path. Um, I, uh, graduated from high school a year early and went to UC Santa Cruz with the intention of studying a pre-med program and going on to vet school. Um, and, um, I was young, um, and it was a little too much and so, sixteen, it's yeah, very young, very especially
1: to be put in a college atmosphere. Yeah, you know,
0: yeah, I was way too young. Um, but you know, when I was in high school, I started. I started cooking and baking when I was probably about four. Um, it was maybe even three.
1: Now um, who was is- Showing you how to bake.
0: My mom. So my, my older brother, I have a brother who's two years older than I am. When he went off to school, I was, you know, very sad to see him go. And I was three. And so my mom started, you know, baking with me to keep me occupied. And so, you know, I think by the time I was, I don't know, four, I could make chocolate chip cookies on my own. I couldn't deal with the oven. But I was, you know, I was a pretty avid baker. Um, and that kind of segued into, in high school, um, being more of a hobbyist cook. And um, so I had subscriptions subscription to Bon Appetit and Gourmet and, you know, poured over those recipes. And I would, as soon as I had my driver's license, I would drive to Fresno to find ingredients for, you know, recipes. And I really started to cook pretty elaborate meals. Um, and that was my thing. You know, it was my, my hobby. And so when I went to college at 16 and and dropped out um, uh, within the first year, I was also an avid skier. So I thought, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna become a ski bum, and my parents weren't so keen on that. So I thought, okay, well, I'll be a cook and. I'll support myself uh, cooking um, and and ski. in Colorado or I didn't know I mean this was just oh, okay. you know this is You're a sixteen a year old a ski resort yeah exactly I'm okay. um, you know a sixteen year old you know kind of lost and trying to figure out my path and you know my parents weren't too keen you know on what I was you know that I was dropping out of school and so I started looking at culinary schools and at that point in time uh, this is a little known fact. Um, I applied to the California Culinary Academy, uh, which was on Fremont Street in San Francisco, and uh, they turned me down. Um, I didn't have any practical experience, and they had pretty serious criteria at that point in time, Mm -hmm. and so they said no, and so I started figuring, trying to figure out, okay, you know, how can I learn how to cook? Well, I was fortunate. I had an aunt and uncle who were avid gourmets and used to travel in France to three-star Michelin restaurants. They would go on these 10-day trips, and they would go to you know, two- and three-star Michelin uh, restaurants, lunch and dinner. And they had met Joachim Splichal at the Hotel Negresco uh, in uh, Nice and had become friends with him because he had just moved to Los Angeles, and they lived in L.A., and so they connected with Joachim and said, you know, I have this niece, and she wants to learn to cook what she should do. And he said, she should come and work for me. And, you know, I'll give her a trial, you know. She, I had no experience, no formal cooking experience whatsoever. said, I'll give her two weeks, and if she can, you know, she can prove herself, then, um, you know, I'll keep her for a couple of years, and then I'll send her off to France. So that... <coughs> Um, so that was the plan. Um, and um, I started in the kitchen with Joaquin, with absolutely no formal kitchen knowledge. And um, it was a, you know, it was a very, he, he was a cutting edge chef, um, amazing. Um, what did
1: he put you through in those first two weeks? How was he testing you?
0: Well, I mean, it was basic skills. Um, you know, I mean, I started out at the bottom as a garde you know, apprentice. Um, so, was you know, he
1: looking for you? Could you stand on your feet that long? Were you a
0: whiner? What do you think he was looking at in those first two weeks?
1: Because he wouldn't expect you to have skills.
0: No, no, he wouldn't expect me to have skills. Um, I think you can tell pretty quickly. I mean, you know, I put people through the test in the same way, and you can kind of see how somebody thinks um, and figure out pretty quickly whether they kind of have a natural aptitude. And I think that's what he was looking for. He was looking for a natural aptitude. So, well,
1: can you expand on that? What 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 are the telltale signs of that?
0: I think it's organization. I mean, I think it's sort of how you sequence and how you think about you know approaching a task and, and your and also your wherewithal. Um, you know, how how tough are you? Um, And he scared me to death. I mean, he was, you know, he was a a screamer. He was super intense. And I, you know, I cry at the drop of a hat. So I remember, like, going and, you know, hiding in the bathroom and saying, okay, pull it together. Like, the worst thing you could do is cry. You know, you're going to have to just keep it together and, you know, put on a steely exterior and try to be tough. Um, And, but I just. What year was this? 1983.
1: Or how many women in the
0: kitchen? <laughs> well, I was fortunate because Joachim was actually a really a big advocate of, of women in the kitchen. And his one of his sous chefs, who was the uh, chef poissonnier, she was this uh, young woman who had worked in Napa and, you know, kind of took me under her wing right away. Uh-huh. Um, and it was – the kitchen was comprised mostly of Americans. Um So, uh, really incredibly talented group of people, Um, you know, pastry chef Gerhard Miechler, he was this um, German guy who has a place here in San Francisco now who was amazing. Um, We had an amazing team, and it was really hard, but I didn't feel discriminated against, and Joachim saw something in me right away that he was willing to um, foster and teach, and I mean, he didn't cut me any slack. But, you know, he was certainly um, encouraging. I mean, after three days of watching me, I don't know. I mean, I, you'd have to ask him what he saw. Um, I, could, I could guess. But um, there were about, I think, five of us that he sort of took on on the same basis. And two of us got to stay and, and the, the others were cut. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, at five or six of us, I, I can't remember, but there was a group wow. of us who were all kind of green, um, you know, d- to varying degrees and he chose two of us to, to, to stay on.
1: So how long did you stay with him?
0: So I stayed with him until 1986.
1: So three
0: years? Yeah. So three years, two and a half years. Um, and the first restaurant was about, I wasn't. It didn't last very long. He, he um, ended up quitting, and so then we opened another restaurant, and I got to go through that whole process, which was a very um, uh, big endeavor in Beverly Hills called Max Triangle The first restaurant was called 7th Street Bistro. And um, so... Yeah, so he kind of ran me through each of the stations in a, a traditional apprenticeship. I started out in Gare and then I went to you know, Poissonnier, and then on to the, the meat station. I didn't do pastry. Um, and then um, I had an, uh, I had gone to France to dine with my family there, and uh, went to Trois Gros, and um, met uh, Michel, and he agreed to take me on as an apprentice. Unbelievable. Yeah.
1: In France, yeah. taking a girl, a yeah. woman... Yes. Are, so, wait, how did that happen? This it, is... This didn't happen. This is 1986,
0: the 1986,
1: yeah. This didn't happen then, everybody. <laughs> no. So, I mean, Tracy, this is huge. Yeah. What, how like, you're just eating there and say I want to I work here? Well, my, my
0: aunt and uncle had become friends with the Trois because they right. were frequent guests. And, um, you know, my uncle, he became a bit of a mentor in terms of directing, you know, what he thought I should do. So I sort of had him, and then I had Joachim, and, you know, between the two of them, they sort of had this vision. And, you know, at that point in time, we didn't have restaurants like the French Laundry here. So no, if okay. you wanted to learn about that type of cuisine... You had to go to France. I mean, that was, that that was, was where it. you were going. That was it. Um, and so I was, you know, <laughs> and I was very naive. I mean, I had never left California. I was this little, you know, country farm girl. I was not, you know, a terribly sophisticated person. Um, and I think, I don't know, I just never really thought about the obstacles, you know? I mean, that's one of the things I always say. Um, you know, when particularly young women say, you know, well, how did you do it? And weren't you discriminated against? And, you know, I never thought about that part of it. You know, I didn't think, I, I thought about what was possible, not what, what, what was not possible. Mm-hmm. And um, it just, I was so inspired by, by, you know, what I was doing and, and the opportunity to learn and to work in a kitchen like Toi Gros. I went there as a guest and I saw that kitchen and, You know, you can feel the history and, you know, understand, you know, the history of a restaurant like that. And it was, you know, there was just no other way I was going to do this. I mean, this was the path. And, you know, anything I had to do to make it happen was, was my course.
1: So did you speak French? I did
0: not speak French.
1: Oh so what were the first days like did, were you sitting well, there and then the next day you're in the kitchen or? Yeah I mean no
0: so my aunt um who was you know wonderful said you know let's go to Paris um we'll spend you know two months taking French classes before you start at Trois Gros. um I started taking classes I mean as soon as I sort of had this aspiration in Los Angeles I started taking uh, classes at Alliance Française, but I was working, you know, six days a week, twelve hours a day, so I didn't have a lot of time to study French. Um, you know, all the culinary terms were there, and
1: and the the curse words, too. yeah, exactly. In the kitchen.
0: Yeah, I mean, so you know, I mean, kitchen language, you know, all the technical uh, sort of kitchen stuff was all in French anyway. So understanding that, you know, you have a pretty good leg up. And you know, honestly, not knowing French was probably a benefit because then I didn't hear all the static. You know, it was it was um, yeah critical path. I mean, you know, understanding what I needed to understand in terms... I mean, if someone puts a big box of, uh, you know, mushrooms in front of you and shows you how to clean one and, you know, you carry on. So you don't need a ton of language when you're cooking at that level. You know, I was an apprentice. I was doing the, you know, crappy jobs. Right. So so
1: how long did you stay at Trois
0: I was there for six months. Yeah.
1: And what did you learn there... That you don't think you could have learned in the United States at that time.
0: I th- I think that um, you know the, the the well first off I mean working in a legendary restaurant like that I mean just the the history the respect of generation to generation um, the restaurant at that point was run by Pierre and Michel um, Jean passed away I think he passed away the year I started cooking I remember reading that and so it was uh, Pierre and, and Michel and And just being in a a kitchen like that, um, I think the reverence that that the French people had for cuisine was one of the things that really struck me. Um, That restaurant was a very interesting mix in that um, at that point in time, it wasn't, of course, it was a three star Michelin and it was very fancy, but it was also accessible to um, country people. And you would see these people who would come in. The bar was still sort of a gathering place for farmers, for people, foragers, for people who lived in the area. And they would come in and, and, and have a drink in the bar and not necessarily eat in the restaurant, but they would gather there. And you could see that there were people that would come to eat there that saved up for God knows how long, a year, five years, their whole lives, um, but their reverence for that kind of cuisine and and what that meant to them was, you know, amazing. It wasn't just wealthy people who could afford to eat there. It was people who, it was deeply meaningful. It was almost like a pil- pilgrimage to uh, cuisine. Yeah. And and so that, you know, you don't, it's hard to understand that kind of thing if, if you don't see, see. it in, in front of your eyes. And Did you
1: learn any techniques that you thought were extraordinary or... Or was it just...
0: Um... Well, I mean, I, you know, I remember certain things that would happen, like we would get, you know, um, we would get the fish deliveries um, twice a week from, from Brittany. And so, you know, you'd get these, all this product, the oysters and the lobsters, and, and, and they were coming, you know, directly from the people who were sourcing them. So the way that the product was procured was really interesting. I mean, foie gras would come... Once a week, and we're talking about, you know, I mean, hundreds of pounds of it. So, you know, seeing these products on that scale, um, hunters that would come in with, you know, birds that they had killed and mushroom foragers coming in with mushrooms that they had found in the woods... And, you know, the parking lot was down below the kitchen. Um, you could see out, and so you'd see these people, the, the the trucks pulling in, small trucks pulling in, and people bringing their wares into the kitchen. Um, and so it just, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a piece of sort of history and procurement and, um, you know, part of the French culture that you just couldn't get any other way. So, yes, there were culinary things as well, but to me the takeaway was... Understanding the history of a kitchen like that, and the generational, you know, and then also the people that I worked with, which um, there were a lot of young men that were uh, heirs to kitchens like Toigreau, um, who you know were going to take on the family's one-star or two-star or three-star Michelin restaurant, um, and they were doing their apprenticeship um, in France to learn their trade, even though their legacy was to take over their father's kitchen so it just you know it, it was incredible in that sense so and it was one of the
1: cathedrals that yeah
0: yeah so, so
1: pilgrimage to being a chef yeah so how long did you stay in France
0: um so I stayed that time I was there for almost a year um, so where'd you go
1: after Torque? Um
0: I traveled around a little bit um and um I also got to um no that was my second time I think um let me think um, yeah, so I only worked at Toi that time, and then I moved back to the States, um, you know, out of money, um, <laughs> so I didn't get paid while I was there, um, and um, came back to New York um, and worked for a year and a half uh, in New York. Where? Um, so I worked for Drew Neaparent at, at Montrachet in New York.
1: So was it easier to get a job in New York because you had been in France, do you think, or how, and what was the atmosphere for a woman back then to get into a kitchen?
0: Well, here, here's the story. There were a couple of things that happened. Um, while I was at Toigreau... I got a call one one night from, from Joachim, and he said, you know, I'm going to uh, open a new restaurant in Los Angeles. So he had finished with the restaurant in Beverly Hills and said, I'm going to open my own place, and I want you to be the chef de cuisine. So, you know, stay doing what you're doing right now, and, you know, when we're ready, you know, come back and Wow, he you know, wanted run. you to be the chef de cuisine. He wanted me to be the chef de cuisine. Wow. So Joakim.
1: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I'm impressed. How yeah. old were
0: you? I was 20.
1: 20? Yeah,
0: I mean, at the point at which he called me, I was 20. 20? Yeah, I was 20. Oh, Tracy. Yeah.
1: My, my gosh, I knew you were brilliant, though. Wow, <laughs> child protege. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> so, well, I had a lot of grit. Yeah. Um, but, and, so go on. Yeah, so I, I went back to New York, and uh, I remember, and this is probably, I mean, if I have any regret in sort of the uh, trajectory of my career, um, I, I interviewed with Danielle Boulou, and um you know, sat down and what I'd worked with, which I came, had worked for for Danielle, so I knew of his status. And uh, at this point, he was at... I Plaza Atelier? I think it was Le Yeah. I think it was Le Cirque. Oh, yeah. mm. in was, was oh, the night. Yeah. So this, was, any, this was 87 mm. at this point. Mm. Yeah. So I think he was just starting at Le mm. I think he just finished yeah. at La Plaza Atelier, yeah. uh, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. but mm-hmm. I think that's what it was. Yeah. Um, and uh, I interviewed with him, and uh, he offered me a job, but he asked me for a two-year commitment. And I had already committed to Joaquim, mm-hmm. and so I couldn't absolutely say without a doubt that I was going to be available to, to him for two years. And so I said, I, I, can't, I can't give you that commitment. And um, so he didn't give me the job. And Did you tell him why? Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, he knew why you know but that was just you know that was his criteria and i took it very seriously i mean today that would mean nothing to someone they would say yeah sure of course and you know
1: you wouldn't do that today you still
0: i wouldn't do that today no there. no but it's you know it, it just that was my, my orientation yes. in the world was very, yeah. you know, serious. It's like, yeah. I'll tell, tell you two years, it's going to be two years, and I can't do that. And it's
1: not a good thing to do today. Because no. Because once you break your word with one chef, this is a very small community.
0: Absolutely. You know, you, you, yeah. you've
1: ruined your reputation there.
0: Yeah. And, you know, if you really want to learn, you know, everything about a chef, that's a, it's a good amount of time. It's, yeah. it's the right amount of time. If you're early in your career, yeah. and I was... Um, so I um, interviewed with Drew Nieporn. Um He Brian Whitmer was the chef at Montrachet at that point in time. Um, he was just on his way out, and so I was working for Drew when Deborah Ponzak took over. Uh huh. Um, and so this was my first time working for a female chef, which oh. um, you know was uh, was it, it different? It was different. I think it was it was. Um, collaborative Um, you know Deborah and I had a great working relationship she really relied on me for you know um, a lot Um, and I was her sous chef and um, you know an integral part of the foundation of that kitchen and I don't I never felt like she was trying to keep me in my place. She was utilizing me in every way possible. Um, nice. And, you know, it was a really great experience. And um, I did everything. And, you know, it was, I guess it was my first foray into an American kitchen, if you will. I mean, you know, Drew is an American. And even though the restaurant was called Montrachet and it was, it was pretty, you know, on the French side, it wasn't the same kind of kitchen that I had been in up until that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, you know, my first foray into it. a little bit different style. Mm-hmm. So, and then I went back to France. Uh, I stayed a year and a half with Drew. And, uh, you know, one day I was like, okay, well, the restaurant in L.A. is still not open. And I've kind of had it with New York. And um, I had the opportunity, again, through my uncle to go and work at Lutte Carton. Oh, with and, Sandra. With Sandra. Mm-hmm. yeah. And I had eaten at um uh, when he was still there. And, uh, you know, I thought his food was just absolutely brilliant. And I had, you know, an opportunity to go and work at another three-star Michelin restaurant.
1: And how different was it from Toronto?
0: Um, You know, it was the city. Um, and it was... Um, and Sandron was less hands-on. Um, he had a, a chef de cuisine, Bertrand... Who was running the kitchen? Um, he would come through, um, but he wasn't, in, you know, in the kitchen on a day-to-day basis. Which at Trois Gros, Pierre and Michel were there running the kitchen every day. So it was, you know, a, a little bit of a shift culturally. Um, and it was Paris. It was on the Place de la Madeleine. And Where'd you live? Uh, I lived in the, in the Premier, near Léal. Um, um, Did you
1: ever have time off to enjoy Paris?
0: Well, um, you know, Parisian restaurants are closed on Saturdays and Sundays. So, you know, um, it was Monday through Friday, and the hours were long. Uh, you'd get a break in the afternoon, but basically you'd work from 8 in the morning until about 3 o'clock, and then you'd come back at 5 and work until 12 or 1. So it was, you know, split shifts and five days a week. So you were exhausted at the end of the week. Mm-hmm. Uh, no question. It was, you spent all your time. And, you know, it wasn't enough time in between to get back to my apartment. And, I mean, sometimes I would go if I was totally exhausted and take a quick nap. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it was long hours. So so I did another uh, about six-month stint uh, at Le Carton, And um, it was extraordinary. Um, I think, you know, his... His cuisine was much more um, ethnically ethnically influenced, I think. Than I mean, twaigreau was straight up French, but Sandron was very intrigued by spices and you know flavors from other parts of the world, and and uh, so it was it was a different exposure, very different style of cuisine. Um, so, recipes were very yeah. complex, um, lots of layering of spices, and, and uh, very, so very like different. So I almost
1: a, a graduate school.
0: Yeah, me. yeah, absolutely. Did you spend a year there? No, I wish. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, you know, it, they, they would only take you for small increments at that yeah. point in time. Um, the high demand for um, those kinds of stages. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, mm-hmm. I wish that I could have spent more time. So
1: where would you go after that?
0: So after that, I um, had... Uh, befriended or, or you know gotten to know Alain Passard at um, Arpege.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: Yeah, um, eating there a couple times and I met him uh, as a diner um, and asked him if I when I finished it at, uh, at Lucas Carton if I could come and spend a few weeks in the kitchen. So I spent three weeks with him at Arpege and then went to Louis Cannes and worked for um, uh, Alain Ducasse.
1: In Monte Carlo.
0: In Monte Carlo, yes, when that was his only restaurant. Whoa. So I did three weeks there. So um, amazing, you know. I mean, just.
1: Talk about knowing how to source vegetables.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and Between Ducasse. The
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: And, and, and they were in the kitchen every day. I mean, they, you know, those, it was Ducasse's only restaurant at that point in time. Um, and now we're talking about uh, 1988,
1: 89. How many. American women chefs were able. I know Judy Rogers was at Trois-Ros. Yeah,
0: Judy but, worked at Gros but she she was there as an exchange student. Oh, so um, it wasn't as a well. Yet. She ended up going back and working in the kitchen there. But her introduction to the family was as a family member. She worked. Right. She lived with John yeah. uh, as an exchange student, and I think she was, I think she was around sixteen when she was there. Um, and
1: but but with you, how many when you were there? How many didn't
0: American see any. And zero not not only not american women but no women so i worked in four kitchens uh, over you know a period of basically a year and a half and mm-hmm. there was not another woman in any of the kitchens
1: do, do you feel that you had any particular challenges or just straight up, it's hard for everybody. I mean, I
0: had to ignore a lot of crap, you know? I mean, it, you know, it's again, it's, you know, your orientation. Do you want to focus on the positive or the negative? Um, and for you. You know, yeah, and yeah. I was there for a reason, and I was... I'm, I'm not going to say it was easy. Yeah. It was far from easy. It was, you know, I can remember, you know, calling my parents... Um, when I lived in in Rouen and toagro and just you know crying, I had cut my finger and I wasn't supposed to be in the kitchen, so they had to pretend like I was a client and take me to the hospital and I had my finger sewed up and they didn't use anesthesia and it was like I was just like I lost it that night and I, ca- I, called, I called my mother and she's like go honey come home my dad got on the phone he's like. Don't you come home. You stay there. You know, you finished what you started. So I had my moments, you know. It was uh, definitely not easy. So we're going to take a little break here, and we'll be back in a minute. Today's program
1: has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Are you a locavore? Our Northeast Regional Forager for Whole Foods Market sure is. She spends her time traveling around the New York City metro area sourcing the best new or interesting artisanal and handcrafted local products for our purchasing teams at the local store level. Part of our commitment to our local suppliers includes assisting them with the process of getting their products sold at our stores. Whether it's suggesting packaging designs, pricing, or distribution methods, she's helping some of the area's best new products reach savvy shoppers at Whole Foods Market stores. Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Today we're talking to Tracy Desjardins, and we've just gone through Europe with her. And my gosh, you have such an interesting background. No wonder you're... the chef you are today uh, so tell us how did you how did you start your own restaurants give us just a very quick jumping from france back here what did it take to start your own restaurant would you know how many other yeah. restaurants so did you I'll, I'll go through that that part very
0: quickly i yeah. came back and opened uh, patina in los angeles with joachim as his chef de cuisine in in uh, 1989 and so i spent two years running his kitchen and moved to San Francisco in 91. All throughout my time, I always knew San Francisco was where I wanted to land. Um, and so I moved up here in 91 and started to get the lay of the land. I didn't want to take a chef's position right away, so I opened Aqua with uh, George Morone in 1991 as a kitchen manager and got to know purveyors and you know the lay of the land here in San Francisco and what San Francisco restaurants were about. And um, then uh, worked at a restaurant called Elka in 1992.
1: Oh, I remember Elka.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that was, you know, a a great experience. Um, I uh, worked with Elka collaboratively to create all the food for that restaurant. It was Japanese, French, fantastic, really amazing. Um, And then in 93, I got to open Rubicon uh, with Drew Neoporant. And I was the executive chef there, not my, not my own restaurant, but for all intents and purposes, it felt like my own. Um, mm-hmm. I was an integral part of everything that happened there and the opening and treated it as my own. So I did that for three years. Um, that's where I won the 95 and, um, Food and Wine Best New, Best Chefs. New Chefs. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and then I had the opportunity in 1997 to open Jardiniere with Pat Coletto. So that was the start of uh, my role as a chef-owner and having so, my own place.
1: Right. So I've read that you credit Pat with really kind of being your business school
0: yeah. mentor. Yeah.
1: So how does a chef, you know, your your cooking creds are beyond, you know, question and, and vaulted. So how does the chef in you then bridge over to be chef-owner? What What's the difference?
0: Um, you know, it's, it's the fiscal responsibility of, of running a business. And, um, you know, I opened with Pat as my business partner, um, but I was a day-to-day op- operator. And so I really needed to learn the ins and outs of, you know, what the financial picture looks like. Um, because if you're going to own your own business, you better understand what a P&L means. Um, it's, you know, unless you have endless sources of funds. Um, you know, you can lose a lot of money very quickly if you're not paying attention. Yeah. And so that was the beginning of my education around what dollars and cents mean, mm-hmm. meant and um, how to run your own business um, and what that means.
1: Did anything change in you when, when you became part of, you know, or owner of your own restaurant? Did, did your sensibilities in any way change?
0: I don't think so. I mean, I always had a very, um, you know, thrifty uh, management style. I mean, I think um, Joachim went through a couple of really tough experiences that I was privy to um, in watching him prior to opening Patina. Um, He lost a couple of restaurants, and so that was part of my early education, and I knew what that looked like. Um, Mm -hmm. So there was that conscientiousness around making things work financially Mm -hmm. that was very much on my radar. So that was always my orientation, even when I was working for someone else. Um, It was... I wanted to make everything perform to the best of my ability. Right. Um, and was very conscientious. So
1: when you had Jabinaire and now it's yours, mm-hmm. what was your vision? What you know, what was it that was burning inside you to do in a restaurant when it was finally your,
0: your You know, it's you learn so much, you know, of through your experiences of, of things you wanna do and things you don't wanna do around Probably more management style, um, you know. And, and back in the days that I came through, you know, those French kitchens, they were really rough, you know. There was not a lot of, you know, soft-talking, you know, supportive management style. It was all um, pretty hardcore. And, you know, there, there's another way to do it. I mean, it's, kitchens have to be disciplined, they have to be strict, and I, I believe that to this day. But I, I think the results that you can get, uh, there are different ways that you can get to that point, and 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 make sure that you have those standards that are upheld, and and uh, the food is ex- executed the way you want. It doesn't have to be through tyranny and intimidation. Um.
1: Enlightened management. <laughs> yes, <was called>. exactly. <laughs> Enlightened management. So then you've you've actually grown. Uh, you have, a, a, I think, a small. Empire, you've mm-hmm. got jardinier, you have public house, Rogita mm-hmm. cucina, and mm-hmm. now the commissary, you mm-hmm. have a catering company,
0: and Arguello, which is our latest Mexican restaurant here in the in the Presidio.
1: In the Presidio. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, that, how many people work for you now?
0: Well, the two that I own outright are, are Mijita and the Ferry Building and Jardiniere. Those I own, um, chef owners. So uh, between those two restaurants, I have mm, a little over a hundred employees. Um, so not not huge. Um, and then the others are actually management contracts where I'm, you know, a, a consulting partner, uh-huh. um, and um, they're employed by you know bigger companies. So. so
1: how much time do you spend being a chef, and how much time do you spend?
0: being a manager. Yeah, I, you know, it it ebbs and flows. Um, When I open a new restaurant, um, I will immerse and locate myself in the kitchen for, um, you know, X period of time um, getting a restaurant open. So at the commissary, you know, the first, say, three months, I was in the kitchen every day in whites with a knife in my hand cooking, um, which is, you know, my greatest pleasure. Um, You know, it as an owner, as a, as a business owner, as somebody who manages, um, you know, all of these different restaurants, unfortunately you get pulled very far away from, from the kitchen. So it's lovely to, to be able to do that. And I wish that I could do it all the time. Um, but I would say, I would say, you know, uh, 20% of my time now is, is a chef and, you know, 80% is, is dealing with, uh, the business enterprise.
1: Um, well, we, we're going to have to take another little, break here, and uh, when we come back, I really want to get into, where's your head today, and what's exciting for you tomorrow. Yeah. We'll be right back. Chef Story, and I'm Dorothy can Hamilton, sitting in the Presidio in uh, San Francisco uh, near the Commissary, which is Tracy Desjardins' new venture, uh, and we're talking about where she is today, what her vision is Her, her background is Second to none It's the, the most stellar Sort of schooling anyone could have In the restaurants she worked in So where does someone this talented And this successful And so young What's tomorrow like? What's today like for you? Because you're a working mother as well Yes, I am yes. a
0: 14 year old son yeah. Right,
1: so where is the constellation The next constellation
0: for Tracy You know, I I guess I I took some time. I took my foot off the pedal, as I like to say, when my son was young, because I didn't want to miss those precious years. And not to say that I wasn't still doing what I do. Um, I just wasn't doing it um, to the degree that I had done previously. Um, And so, you know, he's he's not completely grown up, but he's you know he's three years or four years away from going to college and and you know starting his own life and. So I, have returned to working again, you know, opening these, these two restaurants in the last six months. Um, I've worked really, really hard and been working those long, long hours again, and I'm really enjoying it. I mean, I still love what I do and I love, um, you know, being in the restaurants at night and, and talking to guests and working with young chefs and, and, and doing what I do. So it's, I, my sort of, I guess, uh, progression is not necessarily to work less. I mean, I feel like I still have a good 10 years in me to, you know, to work really, really hard and, and to continue to do what I've been doing, um, you know, opening restaurants and and creating new concepts and, and working with my managers and teaching and mentoring them. Um, that's kind of what today looks like. I'm not sure, you know, I don't have an exact path for the next 10 years, but... I've been opening new restaurants. I still have some more work to do here in the Presidio. We have a couple of little projects that are happening. Um, So,
1: tell me about a dish that you've created recently for one of your restaurants. That, I mean, you have such sophistication, such knowledge, and such background. What is a dish that really excited you, that you've created recently?
0: Well, I've been delving more into um, Mexican cooking, honestly. Um, You know, I grew up, Mexican cooking is very regional, and so, you know, the dishes that I grew up with were uh, reflective of of where my grandparents came from in Mexico. But um, I try to travel in Mexico as much as I can, and I have been, I've never learned about cooking by by looking at books or reading recipes or, or history. Um, but Mexican cooking has really grabbed me, and I'm, I'm just fascinated by it. I think it is the most underrated cuisine in the world. Um, I think we haven't even begun to, to hit the tip of the iceberg on, on what is out there. People don't know it. It's it's inaccessible because it happens in people's homes, and it's part of history, and it's not necessarily in restaurants, and people are afraid to eat in Mexico. Um, so I think that there's just this, you know, I, I, I got to know Diana Kennedy a little bit over the last five years, and she's just the most incredible woman. If I could take back the 32 years I've been in this industry, I'd go back and attach myself at the hip... Um, to, to Diana and learn everything I could about Mexican cooking. I just am completely enthralled. So that's kind of where my head is right now in, in learning more about, you know, deep Mexico and, and historical recipes and, and that kind of thing, so.
1: Um, what was your son's favorite food growing up that you he loved you to make?
0: So... Um, God, you know, he eats everything. Um, I never have fed my my son like a child. Um, He's always eaten from the time he was a baby. I had one of those little food grinders, and I would grind up what we were eating, and that's what he ate. So he's a really adventuresome eater, um, has a great palate. He's like a little budding food critic. Um, It's so funny what they learn. I mean, he can see details just, you know. We go to a new restaurant, he's like, well, they really need to work.
1: Well, it's in his blood, (laughs) Completely. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, women in the kitchen are almost afraid to have children. You know, I was at a cherry bomb
0: mm. conference, and,
1: you know, it was a very big topic. How yeah. hard is it to raise a child and be a woman chef?
0: Well, I think it's very hard. Um, I had a plan. Um, you know, I started cooking professionally when I was 17 years old, and I, um, I, I, I figured out pretty quickly that, really, like, balance wasn't really an option. I mean, there's there's balance in what we do is is really hard to achieve. Um, And so I had a goal in mind that I would be in a position by the time I was 34, which I thought was the right time to have a kid, and um, that I would have myself established enough in my career that I would be able to do that, and that's exactly what I did. Um, So I had to plan looking forward to, to get to that point, to be... Uh, You know, financially in a position to be in, uh, have enough autonomy to make those choices um, to really hit that goal where I would position myself to be able to do that. And it's exactly what I did. So, 34 was when Eli was born, and, you know, I owned my own restaurant at that point in time, so I had choices. Mm-hmm. Um, I had established myself already in my career. I think it's very difficult. I mean, I see very lots of young women who come through my kitchens. Who at the point at which they decide to have a child, they never come back to the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, you know, motherhood is enthralling, and you know, it's, it's uh, child is a is a tough competition for getting back and. And working a lot I mean I think you know it's a problem for women in general yes. um, do they make that choice to go back into the workforce after they've had kids yes
1: I, yeah, yeah. I, I think it is generic across the board yeah. of you know if you're in a high-powered job that is not nine to five right. and not so controllable it's 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 hard but in the, Especially the hours.
0: Yeah. Um, but of, for some, you know, in some ways, being a chef, because, you know, generally chefs work at night, you know, it's, you do kind of have some, you have a little bit of, you can juggle leeway, a little bit more, a little day. leeway. Yeah. 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 So, that's really, yeah.
1: really good. So there's, as I was telling you before, a lot of young chefs listen to this show um, and, if you had any words of wisdom, because we're going to have to wind up here in a little bit, words of wisdom for the next generation or the young chefs that you see coming into your kitchen, what what do you want to say to them?
0: Uh, you know, it's an easy one. Um, I think that the, the thing that has happened that has surprised me the most in the trajectory of my career has been the celebrity of chefs. Um, In the last, you know, 15 years, it's, you know, people think of us as celebrities and lots of people, lots of chefs are on TV and, you know, it it changes the way people see you when they see you on TV. Um, If you get into this business because you want to be a celebrity chef, you're getting into it for the wrong reasons. I mean, you really have to have a passion for cooking and for working in restaurants and for um, giving, you know, the guest experience to the diner, which is, you know, what I'm working for all the time is to create an experience for the people who come to my restaurants. And I think that that's really what it's all about. I mean, there are other aspects of it for sure. I mean, there are other things that you can get into around sustainability or, you know, whatever your passion is, but it's a hard road and it's not glamorous and it's very hard work. And, um, there's no easy path. I think that if you're really going to do it right, you have to put in the hours and you have to have the dedication and the passion for what we do. Um, and that's the reason to get into the business.
1: Amen. <laughs> Amen. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. Yeah. such a beautiful place. And, you know, best of luck with all of these uh, endeavors and and you're going to be cooking at the Expo. Yeah, I can't yeah, wait. You, it's fantastic. You're a so, uh, thanks a lot, Tracy.
0: Thank you, Dorothy. Great to see you. Great to see you, too.
1: And thanks to my producers, Robin, Robin Cohen and Jack Innes. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.